episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing splendid, Jody. How are you doing? Splendid. I am bouncing off the walls in a sense. What are we talking about today, sir? We are talking about EQ and compression and in which order they should be done. Is there contention on this matter? An internet forum somewhere, I'm sure there is, that you can only do it one way. But does it really matter yes, to you? Yes, it does. Yes. It does okay, matter cool. to me. It does. Of course it does matters. Does it matter to yeah. you? Yes, absolutely. Oh. If it didn't, I wouldn't be talking about this right <laughs> now. So the first thing is, of course, yeah, it does matter. But this is also, of course, assuming that both types of processes are needed. On the track, right? There is that assumption. Sometimes I think we just process for the sake of it. And we're so used to using EQ and compression and this that we automatically put it on the track. It at least took me a while to step back and realize, well, wait a minute. Do I really need to do this? Whether I would like to EQ take an overview look on what you just said. Go for it. The question I have for you is mm-hmm. you've recently switched over to doing more channel strip-based console-oriented mixing, correct? Correct. When you made that switch, did you start using EQ and compression on every channel? No. But then again, they're not active until you engage them or actually dial some knobs. Right. Right. Because let's say, for example, if you have, like I do, and SSL is my main one that I tend to use these days Mm -hmm. most of the time, the compressor is there. You're not sort of like bypassing it, but it's set in a way that it's not affecting the audio. Okay. Is it there? Yes, but it's not really doing anything. It's not with a threshold that's causing it to do something. Right, in that and it's like the ratio is set to a certain way. That's just default state of the plugin, right? Right. So, right. I just so, wanted to make sure that it wasn't like suddenly you had this shiny new toy of working in console format and suddenly, went, oh man, I got EQ and compression on every channel. Let me just throw it on. No, that was something I... I uh, You'd have done that 20 years ago? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Ooh, I have a compressor. Look at this. This is cool. But it's the case where I've learned to listen to more of what it is I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Right. To be fair, there's a lot of time there is EQ and compression in some shape or form on a lot of the tracks in the mix. It might not be as heavy-handed as it used to be. I've also done the thing where I've worked on, let's say, it's a group of tracks or guitars or not so much guitars because electric guitars don't really need a whole lot of compression, I don't Mm. think. If they're distorted is what you mean on that. Yeah, especially if they're distorted, mm-hmm. right? It depends a little bit on, on clean as well. But anyway, distorted guitars have literally no dynamic range, so right. <laughs> there's there's nothing to, to do that with. But where I have been at, at one stage in a mix with EQ and compression, and then later on in the mix realized that it's really unnecessary. Mm-hmm. So I did a little minutia of listening to that track, whether it's in a group or certainly when it's soloed. It doesn't do anything, so you just get rid of it. And a lot of times, all the little compression that we do adds up, and it can suck the life out of a mix, where it's just like, oh, there's no there's no life anymore. Right. So That's why I was bypass- asking the question when you switched to console-style mixing. Right. The console style thing for me, it's not really the topic of today, but but it kind of started when I started using Slate 
plugins mm -hmm. in the sense that it, everything is there in a rack. Right. Like a 500. And, right. For those that don't know, a 500 is like this little half size looking channel strip thing. And usually they call them launch boxes. <laughs> that you yeah. Plug multiple things in, in actual hardware form. And Slate has recreated that in software visual terms. Yeah, just the GUI kind of looks like that. So at first, it was a little bit of a gear change to get used to that. And I know there were a lot of users that asked, well, can we have these just without the rack? Mm -hmm. So they're just individual plugins. But once I got used to that and not thinking, okay, well, here's my EQ, here's my compressor, here's my whatever, it actually became a lot smoother mm -hmm. to work because you have everything in front of you. So that's where it started for me. But then uh, I also have always been intrigued by all the channel strip emulations and console emulations from Plugin Alliance, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Right now, at least, it feels like it's a much more comfortable workflow for me. Sure. Well, but, and the other thing the to thing. mention about the SSL is that you can place the order of the EQ in front of the compressor. It's not sure. set that way on load up, so to speak. Or right. on the console, but there is a button where it allows you to actually route it in front of the compressor, which harkens back to the concept of this particular episode. That's why I asked the question. Right. But what about you, though? Because you're a console guy now as well, type of thing. So Yes, on a pretty that, major point, yes. Right. Has that changed the way that you do things? In terms of always using EQ and compression? Yes. No. <laughs> Just no. like okay. you, it has not changed that fact. Right. However, it does change upon which console setup I'm using. And we have discussed that in previous episodes of the podcast in that I have about a good 10 or 15 different console arrangements now. Some of them allow that change. The SSL ones allow that change. Some of them do not allow that change. And it's just dependent upon which one they're emulating. Therefore, I go based on that sometimes. Right. Just but will that, okay, so let, let's say that there's one that doesn't have that option for you. Mm -hmm. Now, in those cases, I honestly don't know because I don't have all the emulations that you do. Right. On the ones that don't allow you to reorder, is it always compressor EQ or is it always EQ compressor? Compressor EQ. That's what makes most sense to me. But Yeah. yeah uh, it's, Which one is that? Just out of curiosity. The API does that. Oh, okay. The API is the compressor first. Now, that also has high and low-pass filters in front of the compressor. So in a right. sense, there's a very minimal amount of EQing that can be done pre-compressor on that. Right. The Helios but doesn't we, have a compressor at all. There's a couple of others that don't have compressors at all, so it just becomes something that's post, unless I yeah. switch the order of the plugins and put it in front. Okay. Because as long as you got the filters there, you're pretty set anyway mm -hmm. for... Most of your heavy lifting, I would say. In a grand but, sense, yes. Why does it matter? Well, let's start with the EQ before the compressor. Okay. Which I think is for- We're going there. We're going there. The EQ, what you're doing to the audio will have a big impact on how the compression will trigger sure. the audio. If you're doing a lot of boosting on like the low end, mm -hmm. that's going to trigger the compressor harder earlier. That may or may not have the effect that you want. You're trying to get life out of a, let's say, a kick drum in this case, and you're 
got the EQ and you're boosting the low end. It's like, why am I not getting that punch? But you're going into the <laughs> compressor and you're just essentially compressing harder. Yes. Right? Knocking it down like a good 15, 20 dB if you right. really ride it hard. Yeah. But conversely, on the other side of that, though, let's say that you are cutting a lot of low end, maybe not even cutting a lot, but you got a uh, decent, you know, low cut filter going up as high as like 100 or whatever to stop the compressor to trigger as quickly and therefore possibly getting the results that you want out of the compression and the kick, right? Sure. So that would be sort of like the main function why I would do the EQ before. Right? Strictly just for low end? No, no, no. It could be the top end as well, right? Right. If it's something. But, but here's, here's how I would look at this. Sure. Or here's how I would think through this. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned kick drums. You can apply that same concept to bass or anything else for that matter. What you decide to boost or cut going into the compressor can change how the compressor will actually react to the signal. Now, if you put that in line on your channel strip, that EQ becomes very different in functionality as compared to running the same compression on a side chain and then mixing mm-hmm. it back in with the original uh, track. If you want mid-range to really hit hard on the compressor, you would boost the mid-range, or you might cut the high and the low. Both would do the same sort of thing. Yeah. You can also deal with this in terms of like, well, I really want this to hit hard on that. And as I mentioned, if you run a compressor in parallel, oftentimes you could deal with that in a sidechain functionality making the EQ do something that you wouldn't necessarily hear on the original track, but it would cause the compressor to do something very different on the parallel tracks, so to speak. And then you blend that back in and you get this interesting use of compression. That's where you're looking at correcting things or going for severe effects, in my mind, is when you put the EQ prior to the compressor. Whether you do it in line or you do it in a side chain, or if you do it in a parallel situation. I agree wholeheartedly with that. I tend to think more in an overarching thing where it's like, if I have EQ before the compressor, it's generally a corrective thing mm-hmm. where, let's say a vocal, and it has some harshness to it. Right? It might be a nasally frequency, or it might be something that it's just not pleasant. Right. Mm-hmm. I would take care of that before it hits the compressor generally. Because if we're using compression on audio that is not as good as we would like it to be, let's say, mm-hmm. to me, a lot of times you can make that problem worse. Sure. My way of thinking is that I want to take care of that before I do any kind of additional processing. Right. And you mentioned vocals there. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, it's a good idea to actually DS the vocal if there's a sibilance problem prior mm-hmm. to hitting the compressor. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You and I would probably do that both with a DSer generally. Right? Oh, but, I wouldn't but, call it a DSer anymore, but I do use something prior. Okay, I know where you're going with it. Yeah, it's Soothe <laughs> too, baby. That is just magic on a vocal for that kind of stuff. Yeah, but what it essentially does is doing that. It's listening for yes, certain transients and certain frequencies. frequencies. Removing yeah. them, and then you compress right after that. Right. It's- 
have you ever had a case where you boost that frequency going into the compressor just to have the compressor hit harder at that and maybe a higher threshold to kind of try to do that, which would be a little bit more of a cumbersome way with the tools that we have now, but is that something that you've ever done, you think? No. No, okay. I've not gone for that effect, no. All right, fair <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> Yeah, okay. And speaking of things that I would normally go after, let's take a word from our sponsors. And we're back. We're going to round off EQing prior to compression with a couple of more concepts. Kick it off, Chris. Well, you mentioned the filters at the top of the episode today. And, and this is something that I would generally do. Uh, filters tend to be separate from the EQ, but if they're not, I would have another EQ doing this kind of thing before a compressor. And it's generally cutting off the real low end stuff. Mm-hmm especially on instruments or tracks that obviously you don't need that weight, right? So if it's not a bass instrument or it's not a kick, 808 or anything like that, that you need all that the subs present there. Mm-hmm. On guitars or certainly on vocals and things, I would a lot of times cut anything, let's say up to like 100, possibly even with relatively gentle filter with a gentler slope. Right. right. And uh, 6 dB, 12 dB, 18 dB. Yeah. As you start to go up in numbers for dB, it gets to be a lot more drastic on where it's lopping things off. I think the highest I've seen is 48, which is pretty hardcore. Yeah, that's pretty harsh. And of course, if you need to do that to get rid of stuff, you can. But I find like with a little bit more of a gentler slope, you can get a little bit higher up because you're not as aggressive in the cutting there. But doing that on all those instruments that I mentioned, like synths or whatever, or especially vocals, because if there's a lot of rumble there and you're going into a compressor, especially if you're compressing pretty hard, you just bring up all that noise and it's not a pleasant thing to have to deal with. So You hear like that, to, bedroom producers that have trucks rumbling by your windows? <laughs> Take that stuff out. Yeah, it could be whatever, 60-cycle hum on guitars or any of that kind of nonsense or anything just to kind of eliminate as much of that rumble that shouldn't be in your tracks. Mm-hmm. You do the same thing, though, with, with the highs, though, a little bit more, right? Or do you? Yes and no. I noticed on this current project of remixing some tracks where I'm specifically APIing everything. On certain instruments, I am doing a high pass and low pass filtering in front of the compressor. For things like a kick drum, I'm bringing that low pass filter all the way down to about 7.5K sometimes. Because there's nothing up there for it. So it's like, why even have it there? I don't need it. Yeah. Unless you're Chris Lord Algae and just boost that 8K, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. The idea there, especially in guitars too, I will bring that down roughly to 10K on some, depending on how bright they feel. And I don't feel like they need to be that bright. I'll bring that down too. And the gentle sloping makes sure that it's not ridiculous when I do yeah. it. Yeah, there's a case where I do it as well on electric guitars and usually on distorted guitars. Yes. Because you get up in that frequency, that. it's it's just fizz, right? It's just fizz. fizz. So, so you actually, I find that bringing out 
oddly enough, a little bit more clarity because you don't have that noise. It makes it sound a little bit more focused to me. The rustling hiss in the high end, yes. Yeah, right. So what about EQing after the compressor, Jody? When do you do that? For all other cases, I'm presuming, but what's your thought on that? It's my primary use mm -hmm. of EQ and compression when they are combined. The main reason why I say that is, is I've hit a point for most things that I do, especially when I'm in charge of the tracking, where the tracks are recorded well enough I don't have to worry about it. That's why I mentioned earlier that you can use this as an effect pre-compressor with the EQ. EDM is a great example of that, especially with side chaining, where things are probably recorded most of the time fairly well, but you want that wacky pumping noise that's usually set off by the kick drum. You're going to put a compressor across your entire bus and have it sidechain triggered by the kick drum itself. And that's where you get that pumping, whooshy kind of vibe. That is EQ prior to compression, where you're pumping the bass in order to allow that bass to trigger the compressor to bring everything down. On the flip side, when you're going post compression with the EQ, this becomes your sheen, your lovely factor especially if you're doing both to me yeah yeah no i agree i that's where i do my eqing again if i have to because you said there as well like if the audio was recorded well enough but you might need a little bit of sweetening here and there mm -hmm. right after the compressor that's where i would do that if the compressor has been used obviously right right it's also one of those things to me that depending on the type of compression you're doing or even the type of compressor type that you're using, mm -hmm. chances are it's going to change the tonal quality of the audio again. So that it could be that it's clamping down a little bit too hard on a certain frequency or whatever that you might need to bring that out just a little bit after the compressor as well, mm -hmm. in my experience. True that. But my EQing is... 95% done after compression. If When you're using compression, used. of course. When yes. I'm using compression. Yeah, uh -huh. absolutely. That's where all the sweetening happens. That's where any possible cutting or any shelving even happens after that. Because that's when I get to a point where I've wrestled in the dynamics that I'm hoping to achieve or using an 1176 type of a thing to get like more snap on the audio. Um, now I have the audio in the way that I want it to behave dynamically. There's a, that that's a key thing. Let's expand upon that for a moment. You mentioned that it's a dynamic control situation. Sure. Let's imagine that you were not in charge of tracking this material that you got. And this mm -hmm. is something that can be quite common for people. Fortunately, I'm not one of them. However, I have run into this when people have brought me things to mix where something is way out of whack. There's a couple of things that have to happen here. And on a console situation, it's a lot harder to deal with, but it can still be done in that you're using compression to wrangle in a performance in a sense is what you just said. I know where you're getting at, but yes, that could be one of the things. But I'm saying that if you have an instrument that is really dynamic in itself, not necessarily like from section to section. Let's say an acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. 
it can be a very, very dynamic instrument. As so, any acoustic instrument can be. Sure. Depending on but, how somebody plays it. Right. But if it is a part where it's a lot of eighth notes going on or whatever, mm-hmm. you'll have very clear spikes in the dynamics of that, of the attack. Sure. In that case, in a busy mix, you might lose some of the body of that performance if you let those spikes just be, the dynamics, the peaks, if you will. So there would be a case when I'm talking about taming the dynamics of the sound of the thing as opposed to just how somebody has performed it. Sure, Sure, somebody is performing it. It's more like making it even as opposed to because it is such an uneven instrument in itself. Right. Does that make sense? It does. But what I wanted to get at with that is let's say you have this issue where it's multiple takes that have been given to you on a single track and they were not very well engineered from take to take or from place to place, wherever this might be recorded. A good idea may be to actually do channel fader rides where you're riding the volume into a compressor so that you can even it out prior to it even hitting compression. And then the compression becomes an extra added bonus to keeping things sounding relatively even on a volume level performance. And then you EQ after that if there's no need to EQ prior. And that's what I was getting at with that. That can be a problem, but those are problems that are, I would solve before I'm starting to mix. I would go through the tracks and see if there are those cases. Wacky dynamics. Yeah. And here's another question for you. Sure. How often do you compress EQ, compress EQ, where you run multiples in a row? That's rare. Rare. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can see how it could happen Mm -hmm. if, again, it's not recorded or not necessarily even recorded well, but let's say performed really well. Okay. Where you have to do some corrective EQ and then you try to control the dynamics, get it to where you want it to be as a sound thing with a compressor. Mm Mm-hmm then you might need to do some further EQing on that. And if that makes it go out of whack and I have to use another compressor, probably in trouble, you know? Sure. (laughs) It depends on how heavy you're going with each of these things. Right. To really answer your question, if I have to go EQ compressor, EQ compressor, I would probably try to solve it in a different way. Okay. What about you, though? Is that... Something you come across? You know where I usually do this? I do it myself. Where I usually do it is with vocals, even with well-recorded vocals. To clarify on this, it's very gentle. Let's take this API setup that I'm talking about right now where I'm mixing Uh on this API arrangement. I will use a really light compression at a very high threshold. So I'm getting one to two dB, if that, out of the compressor. And I'm usually using it with a really fast release. It's mostly just to kind of shave off a little bit of the front end, so to speak. But I'm on a very slow attack. It's just a matter Mm -hmm. of controlling different little things that may happen in a voice. From there, after it runs into the EQ, which may be a generalized EQ of adding some sheen after this very simple 
light compression coming off of the channel strip. I will then run through Soothe to alleviate any resonances that shouldn't be there. And then right after that, it's running generally into an LA-2 on this particular project to mm. give an overall compression at the tail end of that. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to backtrack a little bit and clarify a little bit of that as well. Because I do frequently on vocals do a double compressor type of a thing mm -hmm. or a dual compressor in series where I would a lot of times hit with a 1176 type of compressor first mm -hmm. to catch peaks and maybe even add a little bit of that 1176 kind of vibe and attitude, so to speak. Yep. Then usually on my vocal bus, I would use something like an LA-2A type of, or an opto kind of compressor there. It's not like I, I'm completely opposed to using two compressors on the same source. Sure. But on single track and trying to go problem solving with that is usually not a different, that, that's the way I took your question. So right. I want to clarify that, that yes, I do do two, but if I'm doing it to solve an issue, no. Right. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to thing. point that out is that it is a useful means on certain things. And when I do that in conjunction or in series, the first one's never heavy handed most often. 99% of the time, it's not heavy-handed. It's setting everything up to go into the sheen and the shine. Sheen of the resonance The sheen removable. of the shine? <laughs> the sheen of the shine. <laughs> the resonance removal with the LA-2. And that is my favorite combination of getting a vocal to be, I wouldn't say perfect, but in layman's terms, radio-ready, in a sense, and sounding not overly compressed like some of these guys do now where it's just like there's no dynamic at all to the vocal is crazy to me but that's yeah me. but don't you think that also is though a bit of a style dependent thing because it can be like the bro country thing that i'm thinking of i'm just not a big fan of that that's an effect that i might do once in a while but it is not my general rule of thumb to do that yeah the example I'm thinking of is more for vocal attitude type of a thing where okay. I'm not afraid to take more than just the peaks off of a, let's say, a rock vocal mm -hmm. with an 1176 type of a thing to get some of that just that dirt and the grime and it sounds like somebody is just frothing at a mouth and kind of screaming at you type of a thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Where in those cases, I'm, I'm not afraid to take more than, you know, a few dB. I, I'd go as hard as I need to. Which is an important thing in terms of music that requires vocals because the vocal usually, most often, is going to be the most important factor. Yeah. And these arrays of EQ before compression, EQ after compression become important in those situations. That's why I brought all that up. I think also we frequently say things like being careful with taking off too much and stuff. You do what you have to do, right? If it sounds good to have it just completely demolished by the compressor or whatever to make it do what it is that you want to do, then that's what you have to do. There's no rule that says that you have to have 3 dB of compression, you know. All right. Well, 
in I terms of our rules and our life with this podcast. Next up is our Friday Finds. Chris, what have you got this week? How many times have I mentioned 1176 today? More than a handful, probably. Mm-hmm. But my Friday find is a plugin that I've actually mentioned before. Oh, you're I, reusing oh, an old one? Shame yeah, on you, man. I know, but I finally pulled the trigger and purchased it. You can never have too many 1176s. But <laughs> Plugin Alliance, they have the Purple Audio MC77 compressor. It's one more, isn't it? It's not 1176, it's 1177. But it has some cool functionality uh, in it, such as mid-side. It has a sign chain function. It's got parallel compression built in as well. I'm just going to be honest. I just wanted it. I've eyed it for a while. I've tried it in the past, and I bought it. So that's my Friday find, Purple Audio MC77 by Plugin Alliance. Yeehaw. What about you, buddy? I'm going with a hardware pedal today. This is something that was recently released at NAM 2023. It is called the Lumberjack. It is by Electro Harmonics. This pedal is an overdrive boost type pedal, and it's different from other ones in that instead of being a linear boost, what they call it is logarithmic. Thus, it just becomes bigger as it goes along. The idea behind it is rather interesting. It is very reactive to how loud you hit it with your playing. Thus, if you're very dynamic with your playing, it changes how this is going to end up boosting the signal. What I found strangest is that if you have it on a relatively high setting and you play lightly, it will distort as a distortion pedal would. But if you suddenly hit it harder, yes, you're going to hear it actually jump out louder. But that louder hit, for some reason, is not as distorted dynamically, which is really bizarre to me, which that changes how it would react. It's yeah. Anyway, Lumberjack by Electrocarmatics. That's my choice for today. Cool. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. Doing so will get you weekly reminders about the Tuesday tips when they come out. And you must be on the mailing list in order to be entered automatically into any giveaway that we do. Plus, we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of this incredible podcast because you know you love it so much. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the words... EQ order, and you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good one, Jody.